We open in the Word of God this evening to the book of Philippians. Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We'll begin reading in chapter 3 at verse 17, and we'll read through the ninth verse of chapter 4. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 17, and we'll read through verse 9 in chapter 4. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned, and received, and heard, and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. We read this far in the holy and inspired word of God. The text for the sermon this evening is the last two verses of chapter 3, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. What is the Christian? What is it to be a Christian? Somebody asks you that question. How are you going to answer that question? How would you answer it in a very short sentence? Or maybe even with just one word. What is it to be a Christian? Christian. 
A good answer to that, a good short answer to that, is here in the text this evening in the Old English word, conversation. Probably most of you know that the way that would be translated for us today is this, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. It is to have your citizenship in heaven. And that's what we want to explore tonight from the Word of God and from this passage. And as we begin, I want to relate that to both confession of faith tonight and to preparatory for the Lord's Supper next week. Tonight, Brett, Daniel, and Denise, you pledged your allegiance to God in heaven. You said of your life here that you are pilgrims and strangers. You said that you're on a journey, and you said that your citizenship is in heaven. And that, of course, is in contrast to the previous verses. Many walk, Paul said, of whom I tell you, and even weeping, tell you that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And then especially this in verse 19, in contrast to citizenship in heaven, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, that is, they rejoice in shameful things, and they mind earthly things. Their thinking is limited to the here and now, but you have said, we are citizens of heaven. And as you prepare for the Lord's Supper tonight, you examine your life. And the examination in the form is divided into three things. First, the knowledge of your sin and misery. Second, the reality, the genuineness of your faith. And then third, the walk of your life. And there's a sense in which all three of those are here in this verse. You repent of earthly-mindedness. You turn from the things of this world. You believe in Jesus Christ and your faith, and we'll see this in the, you'll see this as you come to the Lord's Supper next week, your faith as you come to the Lord's table is is coming to a spiritual meal to partake of heavenly meat and drink because that's your home. That's where the feast comes from in the Lord's Supper. And then also your walk. That's the third area of self-examination. And tonight, there's really this admonition in the text. Be who you are. You are citizens of heaven. Now live as citizens of heaven. So let's consider tonight these verses under the theme, our heavenly citizenship. Three things. First, this tells us who we are. Second, this sets our eye on heaven. It really gives us a different perspective than the earthly. And then third, this shapes our present living. First, this tells us who we are. We are citizens of heaven. What does it mean 
to be a citizen. And you could ask that question about the land in which we live. What does it mean to be a citizen of the United States of America? Maybe that doesn't mean very much to you if you've never traveled or you've never experienced life in another place without the freedoms that we enjoy in the West and the privileges that we have in this land. But really, to be a citizen of the United States of America is a big deal. Probably the most coveted document in all the world is a U.S. passport. I want one of those. Citizenship gives you many rights. It gives you many privileges. It gives you many protections. It gives you many freedoms. Think, for example, if you had been in Ukraine when war broke out a couple of months ago, then the U.S. embassy would find you. They would seek you out. And they would find a way for you to get home, away from the war zone. That's one of the rights and the privileges of being a citizen of the United States of America. And being a citizen in a land also gives you an identity. It shapes your habits, your customs, your fashions, and your tastes, even your food tastes. And so there are things that belong to a country and a culture that we could say are very American from tipping at a restaurant, to Thanksgiving dinner, to baseball, to gun ownership. Those are American things. And we're shaped by those things. Daniel and Denise and Brett, you understand the importance of citizenship. You've grown up in homes with parents from two different countries. And you've traveled You have a number of relatives who live in this land that are not U.S. citizens, and you understand the rigmarole that's involved in living in a foreign country without a passport there or without citizenship. You have something that they call permanent residence, but it's not permanent at all. You have to renew it regularly. And so there are advantages of becoming a citizen where you live. But even then, And you could say this of your parents, if they've become citizens here in the U.S., there's a part of them that remains Australian, that belongs to the country of their birth, and they are strangers here in some ways. Now, I mention all that by way of illustration because it's helpful for us to understand what Paul is talking about here when he says, our citizenship is in heaven. He's describing people who live in one place, But another place is their home, so that here on the earth, they're strangers, and they have the privileges and the rights of heaven. This is something that that Paul would have selected in his writing specifically for the Philippian audience who would have understand this. Philippi was a city in Asia Minor, in Macedonia, about six or eight hundred miles from Rome. By this time, the city of Philippi was about a hundred years old, but it was a, a Roman city in a different setting. It was built with the architecture of the Rome, of Rome, the citizens who lived there dressed like Romans, they spoke in the Roman language. And it was because they probably had been the soldiers who had captured that land, and after the land had been 
been conquered by the Romans. They were given a piece of property there, and they could live there in Asia Minor. But at the same time, their allegiance was not to the local government, but was to the emperor Caesar, because this was a Roman city. And they had the rights and the privileges of being citizens of Rome. We understand from the scripture what some of that is. Paul himself was a Roman citizen, born one, even though he was a Jew. And he was allowed freedom of travel, which was beneficial for his missionary labors. This gave him certain legal rights in Acts chapter 22 when they stretch him out to to whip him. He says to them, may you do this to a Roman? And he had access, because of his Roman citizenship, to the full legal system so that he could appeal to Rome, to Caesar himself. And now Paul, as a Roman, is saying to these Romans who live in a foreign land, but in a Roman citizen, in a Roman city, as citizens of Rome, he's saying to them, you have a higher citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. There are four things that this means for us, four things that citizenship of heaven means. First of all, we become citizens of heaven by birth, not by natural birth, but by rebirth, in regeneration. We are translated in regeneration by God, moved as it were, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And that's regeneration. God moves us when we're born again spiritually into the kingdom of his dear son. By nature, we are in the kingdom of darkness. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, You hath he quickened or made alive, regenerated, who were dead, who were by nature children of wrath. And you walked in past times according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He says that apart from grace, apart from the spirit, apart from regeneration, we all are under the dominion and the rule of darkness, of Satan, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. But now... By the power of grace, you've become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And it's really our faith in Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, which is like a passport to give us access to the privileges of heaven. So first, we become citizens by rebirth. Second, we are now, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, under a new king with a new set of rules. And we understand what this would be like if you travel to a foreign country or if you live in a foreign country. You're not going to just obey the rules of the land from which you've come, but you're going to obey the rules of that land where you are a stranger. And so you're going to drive on the correct side of the road. If you live there for an extended period of time and earn income, you're going to pay taxes there in that land, even though you're not a citizen there. And the scriptures are telling us here that even though we live here on the earth, 
And even though, as we live here on the earth, there are rules and laws that we must follow as citizens of, for example, the United States, we have a higher allegiance to another land and another country. I think, for example, of when I wasn't a citizen and I would go to a basketball game or something like that, and everybody would stand to sing the national anthem. And I didn't remain seated, but as I stood to sing the U.S. national anthem, I thought, well, I have allegiance to another country. That's something like that here. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that we have been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. The kingdom. That is, we come under His rule. We come under His protection. And that means our allegiance is to someone else than just an earthly ruler or king or magistrate or kingdom. You see, a great example of this in the book of Acts chapters 4 and 5. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples had been preaching. They had been arrested. They had been beaten. They were told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And this is what they say in Acts 4 verse 19. Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. And so in chapter 5, after they had gone out and continued preaching and were again arrested, the question is put to them in verse 28 of Acts 5, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. They were saying, we have a higher allegiance. Our allegiance is to God. And it wasn't long after this that these Christians in a Roman Empire, the whole Christian world in this Roman Empire, learned what that meant. These Philippians learned what that meant when Nero, as emperor, wanted them to announce, renounce their allegiance to Christ and say, Caesar alone is king. Or they lost their lives. So we give allegiance to a higher power and a higher king. That is Jesus. And that means in the third place that we are aliens and strangers. Foreigners here on the earth. There's a green card that you can obtain if you have permanent residence in this country, but you're a foreigner. And on that green card, you have what's called an alien registration number. Aliens. Strangers. People that don't really belong here. And that's the idea here of being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is the way that Paul, uh, Peter begins his first epistle as he writes as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, to the foreigners, to the aliens scattered. And he's talking about Christians who live in churches all over. And he says, you are strangers. And that's what First Peter is all about. The life of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. A pilgrim and a stranger here in the earth. When a soldier goes off to war. He's a stranger in the place where he, where he goes. It's a foreign land. 
He's serving his country there, but he doesn't want to stay in that place. He wants to come back. He wants to get home just as soon as he can. And that's the way we have to think of our life here on the earth. And that's put before us in a beautiful picture in the scriptures. You remember when Abraham was called to go to the land of Canaan. And he went out not knowing whither he went. He went out in faith. And God told him as he walked through the land of Canaan, everywhere that your foot lands, I'm going to give that land to you. But how much of that land did Abraham actually receive? Just a cave to bury his wife and his dead. And then that's explained for us in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10 and 13, this way, that by faith he sojourned in the land of promise. He was a stranger there, as in a strange country, dwelling not in houses, but in tabernacles or tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They that say such things confess that they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now think of how important that is for us. How important that is for each of us as believers. But also for the young people that have made confession of faith tonight. This is not our home. Heaven is our home. And don't we put down our roots too deeply here. We don't live in tents. We live in houses that are... That are bound to the earth with heavy concrete basements. And too often we think this is our home. And too often we are consumed with thoughts about this life. And too little are we thinking of the reality that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven the customs of this world, the possessions of this world, the pleasures of this world. We have higher customs, higher pleasures, higher possessions, and an inheritance in the heaven that fades not away. And so we should live loosely to this world. The Bible even says that in 1 Corinthians 7 that that's the way we should live in our closest earthly relationships. Be ready to let go because heaven is our home here we're traveling through aliens foreigners in the fourth place being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven means that we have all the rights and privileges that belong to our heavenly home to the city of heaven we have entrance rights when we come to that celestial city the gates will be open for us. Come, the Savior will say, and enter into the joy of your Lord. We have economic rights in heaven. Already now we have an inheritance incorruptible, eternal in the heavens that fades not away. We have legal rights. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who stands in the presence of God not only as our intercessor, but as a lawyer, as it were, declaring our innocence. We have protective rights because our king is also our deliverer, and he has delivered us. 
He is delivering us and he will deliver us from this present evil world. These are the rights and the privileges that we have now. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, he has made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, we have those heavenly privileges. This, this is a present reality. This is not something that we're waiting for. We're not waiting to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But the reality is that we are already citizens of that kingdom. Yes, by faith. Yes, in hope. But also in reality. Our citizenship is in heaven. Here is not home. This tells us not only who we are, but it describes for us our hope. It, it gives us perspective as we live in this material world, in this present world, in time and space as we know it now. It lifts our eyes. It teaches us to look beyond the present. We have a hope And hope describes in the scripture not just something that we're longing for, that we anticipate, but a reality that is. And that hope is set before us in the verse in in two different things. First of all, from heaven, we also look for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. Being citizens of heaven... We look towards heaven because from heaven we anticipate Jesus to come. This, of course, refers to the return of Jesus Christ, what we sometimes refer to as his second coming, what's called in Scripture the parousia or the appearance, the manifestation of Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven. And the apostle is concerned here not with the timing of that, But with the reality of it, the fact of it, the fact of it is much more important than the timing. We can sometimes get all bogged down in in, in talking about the timing of this, this event, the return of Jesus Christ. The scriptures present present it to us this way, simply to think of it this way, that it is the next great event on God's redemptive calendar and all of Christians in all of history have been looking for and waiting and watching for the return of Jesus Christ. There's always an appeal, I suppose, in, in looking around and wondering how soon Jesus is coming. The Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible tells us of that day and that hour knows no man. What's important is that you're watching, that you're ready, that you know that this is the next great thing on God's calendar. And everyone who is a citizen of heaven is, according to the text, looking for that. From whence, from heaven, we look for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior, our Savior. The one who has saved us from our sins, who comes to deliver us from this present evil world, and who comes to bring us into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. 
The glory of that place will be, especially this, that when he comes, we will be with him, with him. That's the way heaven is described for us in Scripture. And, and when we experience that reality of being with the Savior, nothing else will matter. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come again. And I'll receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So Paul expresses very strongly his desire to depart and to be with the Lord, which is far better. And when he comes, it's so that we can be with him. But the other aspect of our hope is described here in in terms of the power of the moment of Jesus' return. And you see that especially in verse 21, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And then he's going to do that according to the working or the power whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The other part of our hope is this, That when Christ returns, we will be changed into his likeness. Now, now we live in bodies that 1 Corinthians 15 describes in these terms. Corruptible, mortal. Natural, dishonorable. And we're going to be buried in those bodies too. And the, and the hope here that's described is the hope of the resurrection day when not only all those who are alive and remain at the appearance of Jesus Christ will be transformed into his likeness when they see him, but also when the dead will be raised. And he's going to, according to the verse here, change our vile bodies. That is our, not just sinful, but our curse-affected bodies. Deformed, disabled, maimed, blind, deaf. This body will be changed in a moment. And you ask, how do we know that? And how can we be sure of that? Or how will Jesus Christ do that? And then it says here in the text, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. And that's talking about what Jesus Christ is presently doing from heaven in his ascension as the ruler over all things. You know that when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, God put all things under his feet. God, as it were, gave him the power of providence. And he rules over all things in heaven and on earth. And he does that by his mighty power. And it's by that same power when he appears that we will be changed. That power is described for us in in two ways in Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says that by this power of His appearing, He will destroy the Antichrist. 
He'll be destroyed at the brightness of his coming. And then it also describes that power this way. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. What's going to change us? Well, simply this, that we'll see him. And that's the same power by which now he rules over all things. Our bodies will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. That is, the body of his glory. The mysterious resurrection body of Jesus Christ. In which he appeared to his disciples. And in which he ascended into heaven. In which he lives now in the presence of God. And which we will see again coming on the clouds of glory. And so this is our hope. We look for the Savior. And we look for Him because when He comes, we'll be transformed into His likeness. And really what this means is that citizens of the kingdom of heaven just have one thing. That's their focus and their purpose in all their living. And that one thing is Jesus. I live for him. And I will die for him. He's on the throne. He rules over all. I believe that by faith. He's coming. Not he will come. But he is coming. And by faith I, I see. And I recognize the signs of his coming. I know that his returning. He's working. He's working to subdue all things to himself. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when he has subdued all things, then he will, as it were, give the government of all things over to the Father because his work will be complete and then God will be all in all. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the purpose of my living. Jesus is coming again. And now when I live and walk day by day, I live and walk to him. That's important for us and very comforting for us as we live in the midst of a world that's sometimes troubled, troubled by war, troubled by immorality. We live in a land today where many freedoms are threatened, where the word of God is despised in, in places of power. When Persecution is on the horizon for believers. Do we panic? Are we fearful? No, our citizenship is in heaven. And we look for the Savior, the one who by his power today is working to subdue all things to himself. So we pray, come. Lord Jesus. Think of Israel when they left the land of Egypt. They came to the, to the shores of the Red Sea, and behind them was the, the army of Pharaoh. And they were scared, terrified. What does Moses say to them in Exodus 14? He says this Stand still and see the salvation of God. Psalm 46 puts it this way The nations. And the creation may be in a tumult. Even though the mountains be cast into the midst of the sea. I will not fear. 
be still and know that I am God. And so our steadfast and firm expectation as believers is that Jesus is coming. He's coming. And he's working everything towards the day of his coming. If you read the New Testament, this was very early on. 2,000 years ago when the apostles preached, this was the expectation of the church, that Jesus Christ was coming. They believed he was coming. They looked for it eagerly. They had a, a constant influence in their hearts and their lives, that Jesus was coming. That was their perspective and their hope. They weren't looking to improve the world. They weren't looking to establish an earthly kingdom. They weren't looking to overcome Rome's power. No, they were looking for Jesus to come. And he said, behold, I come quickly. And so they waited and they watched. Are we still, 2,000 years later, filled with the same expectancy and hope for the coming of Jesus Christ? And if we are, that's going to change how we live. And here I want to see the verses in their context. I read from verse 17 in chapter 3 to verse 9 in chapter 4. And you'll recognize a similarity between 3.17 and 4.9. 3.17, brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. And then in chapter 4, verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So Paul is, is giving this segment here in this section to be disciples. Earlier in chapter 3, he says, be followers of us as we are of Christ. So we're talking about Christ-like living which they saw exemplified in Paul and others. And he's saying, what you've seen and heard in me, do walk in my steps as I walk in the Savior's steps. And in the intervening verses, the apostle gives us really a contrast. On the one hand, there are those who don't walk. That way. Many walk, he says in 3 verse 18, of whom I've told you often and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's shown this way that their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, their mind is in earthly things. And you understand what he's saying there that God is their belly, they live just for pleasure. Any way that they can satisfy themselves. They glory in their shame. That is, they live in shameful ways and they find their glory in those things. And they mind earthly things. Their thoughts are consumed with all kinds of things simply relating to the here and the now. The dealings of daily life. That's the mindset of the world in which we live. Materialism, 
pleasure. In contrast, he says, you are citizens of heaven. And you see that contrast in the way that he begins, verse 24, our conversation. He's giving a reason to us to follow his example. Part of the reason is that they live in that destructive way. But the other part of the reason is you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so your focus should not be downward. Your focus should not be inward. But your focus should be upward and forward and outward. Our future with Christ transforms our life in the present. Has a sanctifying influence on all of our thinking and all of our willing and all of our desires. Think of the way that's put in these passages in Colossians chapter 3. Since then, or if then ye be risen with Christ, seek the things above. The Christ is at the right hand of God. And he goes on to say, our life is hid there with God. That is, there's a part of us that's already there in heaven, in Jesus Christ. So that hope of heaven, Hebrews says, should be like the anchor of the soul. And as we, as we pull on the rope towards that anchor, we come closer and closer to heaven. In Second Peter 3, it's put this way, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Their end is destruction. Why? Because all the things in which they hope will perish. And so 1 John 3 puts it positively this way in verses 2 and 3. Everyone that has this hope purifies himself even as he, that is Christ, is pure. Is heaven your home? Is the coming of Christ your hope? Is the changing of your body into the glorious body of Jesus Christ your longing? Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Are you concerned about purity? Are you concerned about holiness? Are you concerned to put away evil thoughts, evil desires, evil vices and behaviors evil words are you concerned about your consecration to Christ living in holiness everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure think about that this week in preparation for the Lord's Supper is my life heaven oriented And a heaven-oriented life looks like what Paul describes in the verses following the text in the beginning of chapter 4. These, these verses which describe us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven are really foundational for what the apostle talks about in the first part of chapter 4. And he describes there not so much doing... Sometimes we think of the Christian life that way, that we follow commandments that were moral... But what the apostle's concerned about is 
the things that go on inside of us. He addresses things like moderation or gentleness in verse 3. Sorry, in verse 5, let your moderation be known unto all men. He's talking there about a spirit that is self-controlled and especially that is temperate in the way that we live with others. We're gentle in our dealings. Isn't that one of the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness. He talks about, verse 5, our anxieties concerning the things here below. And this really parallels what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, be careful for nothing but In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about what you'll put on, what you'll eat. God will provide those things. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven in prayer entrust their care to God with thanksgiving. Indeed, He talks here about all of our thinking. Finally, brethren, verse 8, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. Let those things fill your minds. And what a contrast to... The previous chapter, verse 19, who mind earthly things. So think, he says, on these things. Think on these things. And out of all that comes what? Joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. So I asked at the beginning of the sermon, how do you describe a Christian? Well, he's a citizen of heaven. What does that mean? Well, it means not only that he lives by a different set of standards and rules, but his character, his mindset, his worldview, his hope, his longing. All these things are changed. The Christian is described from within because he's been transformed by the Spirit, born again into the kingdom of God's dear Son. What a great thing. Heaven is our home. You remember Jesus' longing, Father, I will, as he was leaving, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Let that be our longing too. Amen. Father, we're thankful for this description in the Word of God of not only who we are, but where our heart and our mind and our desire And our longing ought to be. Encourage us in these things we pray.
And help us to encourage one another in these things too by sharing the joy and the hope and the love that we know in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.